Take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. Boy, we've been fed today, haven't we? Already. Dr. Emsbaugh, excellent message this morning. Uh, Pastor Wynn, what an excellent message during the uh, worship service. And I want to be a blessing tonight. I'm going to speak on a familiar passage about the birth of Jesus. I'm going to speak... Uh, from a doctrinal point of view. So it's a doctrinal message tonight, a doctrinal message for all you serious Bible students out there. Do we have some serious Bible students out there? Would you say amen, please? Amen. Serious Bible students. It's a Sunday night. I would assume we have a lot of serious Bible students. Children, stay with me, okay? If you can just tell me one thing you learned during the message afterwards. I will be proud of you on that, okay, kids? But we're going we're gonna to look at a doctrinal message tonight on the birth of Jesus. The title of the message is, A King is Born. A King is Born. Let's look at verses 6 and 7. Let's read it out loud together. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. Everyone, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Isn't that a great passage? Jesus was born as a king. Jesus was born to eventually set up his earthly kingdom on the earth. His earthly rule. His rule of this earth. Now I don't know about you, but I have been increasingly disappointed over my adult life with the choices of political candidates out there. Anybody with me? Okay, anybody with me? Um, now, please, please let me back up and say, there are some good people in politics. There are some faithful politicians that stay true to um, the Constitution and to their task. There's even some good Christians out there. But a lot of times we have to hold our nose when we go to the polls. Uh, especially when we lived in Connecticut, it was like, this, this, this stinks. I have to choose between the lesser of two evils here. We had corrupt politicians. We had politicians that, that were not conservative anyway. We had no conservative choices where we lived up there. And so we went to the polls like this and, and did our best. And it's, at times, if you're like me, you say, is this the best we can come up with? Am I the only one that thinks this way? Is this the best that we can come up with? These guys, these people. And so at times we're disappointed with our political leaders and our government leaders. In a, and all of us know this tonight. In a purely human sense, the perfect political leader is a myth. That's a myth. There is no perfect political leader. And yet we all have this innate desire for leadership. We have this utopian longing for justice and morality in our society and integrity and, tr and trust. 
inside of us. There's this conflict going on. We know something is severely wrong in our society. And at the same time, we know that there's really no one here that can fix it. And yet every, every uh, season uh, of, of uh, voting, every time that a voting season comes and a political season comes, like we have coming up in 2024, we, we listen to the high-sounding rhetoric and the promises of our politicians and we, and we tend to ignore our realism and listen to our idealism and say, maybe this is the one. Maybe this is the guy that can do it. Maybe this is the, the woman that can do it. Maybe this is the politician. Maybe this is the president. Maybe this is the person that can fix it all. And what we need to realize is this. Our hopes and dreams can only be met in Jesus Christ. And I have good news for you tonight. Our passage says that the Messiah would come and he would be born and the government, the human government, would be on his shoulders. And this government will bring peace that's never ending. Jesus only is the Prince of Peace. He is the one with the noble character to restore the earth to its perfect created order. And Jesus was born and he came to this earth to establish his kingdom forever. And that's our topic tonight. So first of all, I want you to consider from the passage that the kingdom of Jesus is first of all an earthly kingdom. Notice that. The kingdom of Jesus is an earthly kingdom. Verse 6 again, everyone. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. And the, the clear implication there is the human earthly government. The human earthly government would be upon this child's shoulders. Verse 7. Of the increase of his government, this earthly government, and peace, there shall be no end upon the, everyone, throne of David. The throne of David. Our passage tells us here that the government of men on earth will be upon Jesus' shoulders, the Messiah. Jesus will sit on the throne of David. Folks, that's a literal earthly throne. It's a literal earthly kingdom that's coming. In Acts chapter 2, verses 34 through 35, it says that Jesus is seated at the throne of his father. He's at the right hand of his father. So he's seated at the throne of his father until his father makes his enemies his footstool. And so Jesus is there seated, waiting at the throne in heaven to take his throne on earth. We're not going to look at this passage, but you might want to write it down to look at it later. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 21 tells us that someday Jesus will leave his father's throne. He will sit down on his own throne. So the Bible makes a clear distinction between the throne of God in heaven and the throne of David down here. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father in the throne in heaven, but then someday he's coming to sit on the throne of David, his throne, the throne of Jesus on the earth. On the earth. 
Jesus will rule and reign on this earth from the throne of King David. In Jerusalem, he will rule the earth. He'll reign on earth for a thousand years. And at the end, God's righteous rule will continue into a new heaven and a new earth. Now, before we go any further with this, it's important that we understand tonight that there's an aspect of God's rule that is universal and without interruption. And we all know this, God rules the universe all the time. So let's consider that first uh, as we, before we go any further with this idea of an earthly rule of Jesus. Psalm 103, 19 says it clearly. The Lord hath prepared his throne in the heavens and his kingdom ruleth over all. Say that last part with me. His kingdom ruleth over all. God is always in charge. Pastor Wynn said it this morning. God is always ruling the universe. He's ruling the universe without interruption. His throne is in the heaven, in the heavens, and his kingdom ruleth over all. That being said, God's rule on earth takes different forms. The exercise of his rule takes different forms, and he has allowed free creatures, willful creatures, a sphere of sovereignty. So Adam and Eve were willful creatures. And God said, I'm going to give you dominion over the earth. So you're going to have a sphere of sovereignty where you can exercise your uh, rule. You'll have possessions. They will be yours. And you will do have dominion over the earth. After the fall of man, Satan was given a realm of sovereignty on the earth. Yes, Satan was given a sphere of sovereignty on the earth. He rules over a societal system that is against God. Now, God is not thwarted by this, but God has allowed this. And Satan is called the prince of this world. He's the prince of this societal system that goes against God. Unhindered by this, though, God continued to influence the earth by mediating his kingdom. That's an important word. He mediated his kingdom on the earth through men, through the patriarchs at first, the prophets, the priests. Eventually, the people of God that formed a nation refused to be governed this way through a theocracy that God had set up, and they said, we want a king. We want a king. We want a king like all the nations around us. And God said, okay, I'll give you a king. I'm going to give you a king, but I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to prophesy and anticipate the failure of this man. This is what he's going to do. This is what his descendants will do. At the same time that God uh, told them about the failure uh, of the king that they demanded, God promised a perfect divine and human king. A perfect divine human king that would fully manifest God's rule on the earth. During the, king, uh, the reign of King David, God promised that from the seed of David, one would come to sit on, on David's throne and rule the earth forever. He would be both divine and human and that's what we find in Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. That's the child that's born. The child who is the mighty God. God and human. God in human form. 
And so this covenant promise was first mentioned in 2 Samuel 7 and repeated in passages like 1 Kings 1, Psalms 89, Psalm 89, and 132, this passage in Isaiah and others. The Messiah King will come. He will rule on the throne of David, a literal earthly kingdom. Now let's stop here and talk about some misinterpretations that come from this passage. We don't have time to delve into this in detail, so I'll just give you a synopsis. But there are many who deny the literal nature of the two verses we just read. Some of them, they see verse 6 as literal, but not verse 7. And they spiritualize this idea of an earthly kingdom. What do I mean by that? They ignore the literal nature of it, and they try to find some deeper spiritual meaning. And when you read it, you say, well, uh, this obviously relates to the Messiah who will come as a baby. The progression of Scripture tells us that. He's God in human form, and he will take the government, and he will rule, and he will rule on the throne of David. It wouldn't say throne of David if it didn't mean throne of David. But there are some who, who deny the literal nature of this passage. They try to spiritualize it and relate it to the church. They try to relate it to the church, and they say the church is now the earthly kingdom of Christ. This is a, this is a misinterpretation. Let's see how this, how this works its way out in, in certain denominations and churches. First of all, you have the idea of the marriage of church and state. The marriage of church and state. And that came from spiritualizing passages about the literal kingdom of Christ. And relating it to the church and giving this idea that the church has some governmental form on the earth. The church should be in control over cities and countries and whole kingdoms and states. Now, you, those of you that know your history, you know that this was prominent in the Middle Ages. And then it made its way to America in the early colonies, in Maryland, in Massachusetts. And the church had strong control over those colonies. In fact, they said, if you want to be in this colony, you have to go to this church. And the church has control over the colony. Praise the Lord for people like Roger Williams, who came to the United States and brought the doctrine of the individual soul liberty to the United States. Amen? Before it was the United States, but to America. And he said, we are individually responsible to God. We don't go through the church to get to God. And the church has a different purview of authority than the state. The church and the state should be separate. All God's people said, amen. Praise God for Roger Williams, John Leland, guys who fought for this and fought against some of their Christian brothers who were teaching otherwise. Now these groups weren't monolithic. Not all of them believed it, but many of them did believe this idea of church and state. We have the freedom in the United States that we have and the separation of church and state because of our Baptist forefathers who brought that doctrine to America and we praise God for it. They, say that they said the church is not the kingdom of Christ on the earth. That's coming later. The church is not the kingdom now. We don't have any right to control countries and cities and states. So that is a misinterpretation of this passage and others. Here's another one, and that's the social gospel. The social gospel. And this comes from the, the liberal uh, wing of Christendom. 
Now, I'm going to make a confession, okay? Nobody come in my office and look for it, okay? But I have a liberal commentary in my office. <sighs> Pastor Zach, why do you have a liberal commentary in your office? I like to read the other side. I like to hear them when they say, you know, Jesus really didn't walk on water. Uh, it was two inches deep. And, you know, they, these crazy explanations, okay? Uh, where they try to deny, which, which obviously literal in the Bible. How many of you believe Jesus walked on water? I, I, if God can sp speak the worlds into existence, I think he could walk on water. But they deny the creation account. They deny the literal parts of the Bible. So I, I went to Isaiah 9 and I read there, they just explain this whole thing away. They explain this away completely. In fact, the, the commentary I have gave, gave a couple explanations, and one of them is, uh, this, relates to, this relates to King Hezekiah. It doesn't relate to the Messiah. What about the, the, the part where it says he's the mighty God? Well, they said he just acts with divine authority as the king. And, and they misinterpret passages about the kingdom of Christ and say this, the church's main job, the church's main job is to bring about societal change. We are ushering in the kingdom by ending uh, poverty and oppression, by bringing about social justice. How many of you have heard that term? Bringing about social justice. So you hear this in the liberal churches that have an open view of the Bible. When you say liberal, that's what, they, what I mean by that. They don't take it for what it says. They deny the supernatural elements in the literal nature of the Bible. They don't believe the Bible is authoritative. You, you see this in what we call liberation theology. How many of you have heard that term? Liberation theology. And so that's the job of the church, bringing about societal change. Now, should the church be involved in social work? Of course. As a way to prepare people to receive the gospel. The gospel. Our primary mission is the gospel. We feed the hungry so that we can get them saved. Because what good is it if you feed their stomach and they don't go to heaven? And so we feed them so that we have an opportunity to give them the gospel or to open up doors in the community to give the gospel. That's why we're involved in social work in Pensacola, to open up doors of opportunity to give the gospel. But the social gospel today doesn't teach that. They say the church is ushering in the kingdom through this uh, utopian society that we're bringing about. The last misinterpretation that we see from not taking this passage literally and others about the earthly reign of Christ is kingdom now theology. We see this kingdom now theology in the charismatic movement, in some uh, corners of the charismatic movement, and that is this. Maybe you've heard this before. The church exercises authority in the physical realm. We can name it and claim it. You like that mansion? Name it and claim it. You want some property? Name it and claim it. You want a Lamborghini? Amen, name it and claim it. And so, now, I'm, 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 I'm being a little facetious there. It's much deeper than that. But uh, you see this prominent thinking that, that the church has kingdom authority in the physical realm. You see where this comes from? And they take passages about the kingdom of Christ and they relate it to the church. 
I hate to ruin the song for you, but the song Majesty was written from that point of view. Kingdom authority flows from his throne down to his own. And so we can just go name and claim property for the Lord, and that's a misinterpretation. You see, if we relate this to the, uh, this earthly kingdom to the church, well, the Bible is clear that when the earthly reign of the Messiah is happening, or the earthly reign, literal earthly reign of God is on the earth, Satan will be bound for a thousand years. I ask you this evening, does it look like Satan's bound anywhere? No. So is the earthly kingdom of Christ in action today? The physical earthly kingdom of Christ from the throne of David, is it active today? No, it's not. The church is not the kingdom. The church is not the kingdom. The kingdom of Christ is coming. It's yet to come. The earthly kingdom of Christ is yet to come. The church is not the earthly kingdom. It's not here yet, but it is coming. And when it does, Jesus will rule the earth from the throne of David. Let's go to point two. We talked about the earthly kingdom. Let's talk about the expanding kingdom of Christ. Notice from the passage, the expanding kingdom of Christ. Let's read it again. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. There it is, the human government will be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Pastor Redland preached on that so well. Look at verse 7. Of the, what's the next word? increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. This passage uses the word increase to describe the governmental structure of the kingdom of Christ, the corresponding peace that would develop on the earth, that would come to the earth, that would be pervasive. The word increase speaks of multiplying abundance and exponential development. It would start with the offer of, of Jesus at, at his birth and during his ministry. Psalm 132.11 says this of, of King David, of the fruit of your body will I set up my throne. David, there's coming a descendant from the fruit of your body and from him I will set up my throne on the earth. In Luke chapter 1, Verses 31 through 32, the angel gave a message to Mary. And Pastor Wynn preached on this. The angel shows up and gives a message and he says, he shall be great, that's Jesus, and he shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give him the throne of his father, David. Jesus was to be given the throne of David. Now, Jesus was born, he began to grow, and he increased in wisdom and strength and, and knowledge. And then Jesus became a young man and he began his ministry. And then a forerunner came named John the Baptist and said, this is the man. This is the one we're, we're waiting for. And Jesus presented himself. Everyone take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 11. This is a key passage in the Bible. 
Jesus then, at his, at his ministry at the onset, offers his earthly kingdom to the Jews. He offers his earthly kingdom to the Jews. Now this is a key passage for understanding a transition in the Bible. Okay? And so we're going to look at it closely. Look at Matthew chapter 11, verses 12 through 17. And from the days of John the Baptist, there's, he's the forerunner of the Messiah King. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffered violence and the violent take it by force. Speaking of the ministry of John the Baptist and the reaction to his ministry. Look at verse 13. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. Verse 14, would you read it with me out loud? And if ye will receive it, this is Elias which was for to come. If you receive the message of the prophets, then John the Baptist is Elijah. As Malachi spoke, there, there would be a forerunner who would lead who would lead the way and speak about the Messiah King, who would, who would offer his kingdom, who would bring his kingdom. This forerunner, Elijah, would lead the way before these prophetic events that would set up the kingdom of the Messiah. And he said, if you'll receive it, then John is it. Jesus said later, John came in the spirit of Elijah. If you receive the message, then John the Baptist is Elijah, and Jesus will set up his kingdom. Based on that verse, folks, I believe that Jesus' offer of the kingdom to the Jews was a legitimate offer. He said, if you will receive me, I will set up my kingdom. But they did not. They did not receive him. Look how it reads further, everyone. Verse 14, and if you will receive it, this is Elias, which was for to come. He that hath ears, let him hear. Verse 16, but whereunto shall I liken this generation? It is like unto children sitting in the market and calling unto their fellows and saying, we have piped unto you and you have not danced. We have mourned unto you and you have not lamented. Children playing a game in the streets where one plays an instrument for everyone to dance and he plays the instrument, no one dances. And Jesus is saying, I've given you the message, you're not listening. I've made the offer you have not received it. The offer of the kingdom is here now if you'll take it. But you won't take it. They rejected the offer. They rejected the king. They crucified Jesus. Now go to Matthew chapter 21, everyone. Matthew 21, another key passage in the transition here of the Bible in the progression of Revelation to understand the need for the second coming of Jesus. He offered the kingdom, they rejected it, so he postponed it. And in the meanwhile, he's working in a different way. Look at Matthew chapter 21, verses 43, verse 43. Therefore say I unto you, therefore say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. The physical kingdom, as we learn through, through, through the rest of Scripture in the New Testament, the physical kingdom on earth would be postponed. 
And God would begin to mediate his rule on the earth in a spiritual way. You see, Colossians chapter 1 verse 13 says that we as the church are translated into the kingdom. We are not the kingdom. We are not the kingdom of God on earth. But we are translated the moment we become a born-again believer. A spiritual transaction happens as we acknowledge Jesus as our Savior and acknowledge him as Lord, we are translated into heaven's citizenship and we become ambassadors down here in foreign territory. Amen? We are ambassadors for Christ. We're translated into the kingdom. He rules our hearts. There is a spiritual rule going on in the hearts of men. And then we expand the citizenship of the kingdom by giving out the gospel. That's the work of the church today. We are not the kingdom. We are translated into the kingdom. And we're gathering and listing citizens for that kingdom that will one day come to earth physically, literally, visibly with the second coming of Jesus. Until then we pray, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. We're, here's what we're going to do. We're going to enlist as many people into heaven's citizenship as possible. We're here to be ambassadors in foreign territory. We're representing heaven's citizenship in this place that is run by Satan. And to do that we have to present Christ and represent him well. We are ambassadors, Paul said. We're ambassadors. We present Christ and we represent him to this lost world. And as we do, we gather people. We gather. Are we doing kingdom work? Yes. We're gathering people into the kingdom of God that will one day come to this earth and we will rule and reign with him. The kingdom of Jesus is an ever-increasing kingdom. It's ever-increasing increasing in its abundance while God is preparing to manifest it literally on the earth. And that's coming. In fact, we look at the news today and we say it's all working together. It's coming. The kingdom is coming, folks. It's coming. Which leads to my last point. We talked about the earthly kingdom. Go back to our passage, Isaiah 9. We talked about the expanding kingdom of Christ. Now let's talk about the eternal kingdom of Christ. Don't you love the end? Verse 7, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be what? No end. No what, everyone? No end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. Forever. I, go, I hope God can help me tonight to impress this upon your mind and heart. The kingdom of Christ is an everlasting kingdom. The kingdom, what started in Bethlehem, will keep on going for all eternity. Jesus will set up his rule forever. T.W. Chamber, 
described this dominion when he wrote this. Listen closely. God's spirit will prevail everywhere. Securing justice, truth, kindness, and courtesy among men. Doing away with wars, contention, jealousy. Softening the inevitable contrast of rank and gifts and condition. Binding men one to another. And their to, to their devotion of a common master. The idea of such commonwealth originated in the scriptures and it can only be realized in the way they point out. This cannot be said of any civilization at this present time. Only the kingdom of Jesus will do this. All societies are destined to decay. We're bound by the historical precedent of a rise and decline of all nations. Earthly kingdoms come and go. I ask you a question tonight. Serious Bible student. Serious believer. Is America in decline? I ask you. Is America in decline? I hope not. I've said to my children, I hope you, I, I pray for you guys that you have some strong convictions. I've said to my children, you, you're going to need some strong convictions for what's coming. I hope it's not, but it may be. It may be. Oswald Spengler proposed a depressing philosophy of history in his famous work, The Decline of the West. He said that all civilizations run in cycles. They have their springs, their summers, their falls, and their winters. They have their mornings, their high noons, and then their twilight into oblivion. And then he concluded by saying this. For us, however, whom a destiny has placed in this culture and at this moment of its development, the moment when money is celebrating its last victories. Our direction, willed and obligatory at once, is set for us within narrow limits. And in any other terms, life is not worth living. We have not the freedom to reach to this or that, but to the freedom to do what is necessary or to do nothing. Let me read that one more time. We have not the freedom to reach to do this or that. Folks, if we think that through America we're going to set up a utopian society, we're going to be severely disappointed. If all our hopes are in America, we're going to be severely disappointed. We love our country, all God's people said. But if we think we can rise, we have the freedom to rise to this or that, to build a utopian society on the earth through the United States, we're going to be disappointed. We don't have the freedom to do that. It's imperfect. It's flawed. But we do have the freedom to do what is necessary or to do nothing. We're not going to do nothing, right? But we're going to fight for our freedom, defend our freedom, do our best to teach our children to carry the heritage of America forward. All the while knowing that someday it's going to be gone. It's going to go. 
You say, Pastor Zach, that's a pessimistic view. No, it's not, because if you turn it around, you, you realize our hope is not in ourselves, but in Jesus. Our hope is not in God, our, uh, not in government, but in God. Our hope is not in government, but in God. Our hope is not in America. Our hope is in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. So what do we do? We pray. We pray thy kingdom come. We pray for our country. We vote. Yes, we're involved. And sometimes we have to hold our nose, but we go to the polls and we do our best to secure and keep our liberties. So we vote. We're salt and light in our society. We're a convicting presence and an attractive presence. We're ambassadors. This requires engagement in, in all the aspects of culture that we can be involved in. And so we get in there, in society, in the culture, as ambassadors for the kingdom. All the while knowing this, that only when Jesus comes again will there be peace on earth. That's when he will make wars to cease, Psalm 46, 9. That's when the righteous will lie down safely, Hosea 2.18. That's when we will learn war no more, Micah 4.3. Only when Jesus comes to rule the earth will every life be reclaimed and restored to worth and a perfect societal order will be realized. And every, every effort for the Lord will receive its reward and we will see the highest principles of structure and safety implemented in society. So today as God's children, we pray, thy kingdom come, thy kingdom come. We're looking forward to the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And we sing with anticipation, all hail King Jesus. What do, what do we do with all this tonight? Well, we turn our hearts and minds to Jesus. We turn to Jesus and find the ultimate accomplishment of our highest aspirations on this earth. He was born as a baby. He lived and died. Someday he will come and rule and reign with us. And the zeal of the Lord will perform this and his kingdom will be forever.